Okay, good morning everybody. Uh, welcome to Forensic Psychology uh, 301 and 302. Uh, I'm your instructor, Neil Shortland. Um, hang on a minute. Something doesn't feel right. That's better. Welcome to Forensic Psychology. gentlemen to the eighth wonder of the world the flow of the century oh it's timeless ho thanks for coming out tonight you could have been anywhere in the world but you're here with me i appreciate that uh. sorry 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 Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Forensic Psychology. My name is Neil Shortland, and I am going to be your instructor for the next 15 weeks. Now, what I hope is that from the opening 12 to 13 seconds of this course, you have a sense of the fact that I am going to try my very hardest to make this the most informative and enjoyable experience that we have. Look, I know where we all want to be, right? I know where we're all meant to be right now. Uh, and I guess the world didn't want it to be that way. So here we are. I'm in my basement. Some would call it my influencer studio. I'm sure you're all in your, fa in, your, in your houses, wherever you are in the world, and we're all trying to learn virtually. So I'm gonna try everything I can. I'm gonna try and innovate, adapt, to bring you the best forensic psychology course I can. So hopefully you'll have already got that impression, right? These are the weekly YouTube videos that I'll be making for you. I'll be using interactive materials, lecture materials, I just want to talk you through the theory, but also you're going to see that I've done some videos for you on the readings. I'm going to put them all up in audio format so you can listen to them wherever you want. And hopefully the next 15 weeks, despite everything we have in front of us, you can still get a sense of forensic psychology, what it is, what it means, and kind of what it is to me. Because this course is very much, it's an expression of my vision of what forensic psychology is. And in doing that, I give you kind of two things. I give you what forensic psychology has been, what it does, but I want to give you an idea of what I believe forensic psychology could be. So look, without, without anywhere better, I want to show you the opening clip that was played to me in my first ever forensic psychology class. So enjoy. Okay. Oh, of the killer that led you and the police to my client's door that night. Behavioral analysis was a factor in our investigation, yes. And was behavioral analysis also a factor in the Olympic Park bombings case in Atlanta? Yes, it was. And was that suspect you identified, Richard Jewell, ever convicted of the bombings? Objection. Relevance. Goes to the credibility of the witness and his field. I'll allow it. No, he was not convicted. Because he was innocent. Your profile led you to the wrong man. Jewel was not the perpetrator, but if you look at the real Olympic Park bomber, Eric Rudolph, you'll see that our profile was dead on. Well, how about if we look at the Baton Rouge killer? Your unit said that he was white and living in the city. He was black and from the suburbs. You said that Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, was divorced and impotent. He turned out to be married with two kids. Objection, Your Honor. He's giving a sermon. You have a question in there somewhere, Counselor? Having been wrong on those cases, isn't it possible that you were wrong about Brian Matloff? No. Fact is, behavioral analysis is really just intellectual guesswork. 
You probably couldn't tell me the color of my socks with any greater accuracy than a carnival psychic. Objection. Withdrawn. Charcoal gray. Well, look at that. He got one right. You match them to the color of your suit to appear taller. You also wear lifts, and you've had the soles of your shoes replaced. One might think you're frugal, but in fact, you're having financial difficulties. You wear a fake Rolex because you've pawned the real one to pay your debts. My guess is to a bookie. I took this case pro bono. I am one of the most successful criminal attorneys in the state. Your vice is horses. Your Blackberry's been buzzing on the table every 20 minutes, which happens to be the average time between posts from Colonial Downs. You're getting race results. And every time you do, it affects your mood in court, and you're not having a very good day. That's because you pick horses the same way you practice law, by always taking the long shot. You spin a very good yarn agent, but as usual, you've proven nothing. If I'm not mistaken, the results from the fifth race should be coming through any minute. Why don't you tell us if your luck has changed? Your Honor, this is... What do you want me to do? Either show us your Blackberry or cut him loose, Counselor. Nothing further. So in that video, we had what they, what they call Hodge Rocks the Court. And so I was a, a 19, 20-year-old, right? I'd just finished my BSc in uh, investigative psychology, sorry, uh, experimental psychology. And, I, and I, I went and I started my master's in forensic psychology. And I had the vision that kind of was, was portrayed to us there, right? I'd seen the criminal minds, I'd seen the mentalist, I'd seen all of this. And I had this idea of what a psychologist does. And, and that video was played to me by the, by the leader of the course at the time, a guy called Lawrence Allison, who we will hear a lot about over the next 15 weeks. And he played that video and he looked at the class and he says, if this is what you think forensic psychology is, get out. Right? He almost kind of like a Ricky Gervais office season one gag. Um, and basically, I remember, I remember watching it and I, and I looked at it and in my head, I honestly thought, no, that is exactly what forensic psychology is like. And I'm going to prove you wrong. And, and then began my journey, right? And, and it's the journey that we're all going to go through. And a lot of it is about untangling how we separate what is real and what isn't. And it's one of the things I'm going to talk about in the, in the upcoming weeks, this idea that forensic psychology is often more bought from fiction than it is from the kind of the psychological knowledge of what we can do. And often as a psychologist in this area, our biggest challenge is to is to counter this idea of what the psychologist can do. And that normally is is bred from TV shows. Prodigal Son is, is, is an atrocious television show, just a side note. And also I watched the new, um, ah, the new uh, is it the Science of the Lambs. There's a new TV show uh, that is absolutely atrocious. I'm going to dig it up for you. But anyway, so I kind of started my journey and I, I wanted to, I guess, understand what forensic psychology is. And that was 10 years ago now. And if I look back on what I thought then and I compare that to what I think now, kind of being a forensic psychologist, if you will, I would agree that the, the court scene we've just seen is not accurate. You know, we are not all singing, all dancing, you know, soothsayers of information and understanding people and, and, and how they are and kind of all these little micro nuances. We go into that next lecture. 
But actually underneath all of that is something much, much cooler. And that's what I want to bring to you in this course. I want to show you the version of forensic psychology that is, that is scientifically validated, that is empirically based, where we are making real positive change in the world. And look, we're really lucky. Probably going to want to rephrase that. But think about the world around us in the last 12 months, right? What have we had? A couple of weeks ago, we had capital riots, right? Politically motivated capital riots. We had protests and politically motivated protests that descended into certain acts of violence over the summer. We've had acts of terrorism. We've had mass atrocities and acts of, acts of murder. You know, we have all of these examples of forensic psychology occurring in front of us in the real world. And we in this course get a chance to talk about them, to think about them. And that's one of the things I want this course to be. I want it to be adaptive. I want it to be applicable to the cases that we see around us. And that's the way I've kind of designed it. So if I'm going to move forward into the structure of this course, there are four parts of this course that I kind of want to walk you through to give you kind of what I've always viewed as the, the breadth and depth of what forensic psychology has to offer. And so the first thing we do is we start off with this section called movie moments, right? And, and, and movie moments is actually a phrase I stole from our new book we have coming out, um, kind of talking about uh, the, the relationships between kind of the, the high impact things we see on TV and kind of, you know, the, the world around us. But in, but in forensic psychology, movie moments, it means the bits of forensic psychology that are often misconstrued and put out in the media. And, and what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to spend hours debunking, right? Because, I, I mean, it's fun, but it's not, it's not, it's not the most fun. What I want to do is I want to show you maybe how you've seen forensic psychology in the world. And then I'm going to show you what happens when forensic psychologists try to do it that way in the real world. I remember recently I was, in, I was invited to an event. Um, it was kind of an evening with Sherlock Holmes uh, was, the, was the theme. It was by a news station down in Boston. And, and they asked me to give a presentation about how Sherlock Holmes has influenced the world of forensic psychology, how Sherlock has influenced criminal psychology. And I said, that's fine, I can give that presentation. I, I don't think anyone's going to enjoy it, but I will happily give that presentation. And so I went there and at this lovely event, I got up there for my 15 minutes and I told a story. I told a story of a, of a case involving a man called Colin Stagg and the murder of Rachel Nacal. And, and it's one of the cases that we're going to look at in about week three. And in that case, the, the, the profiler, if you will, he let that that movie version of himself, maybe, maybe reenact itself a little too much. And, uh, and it, it predictably goes horribly wrong. But that's not the only time. Because immediately after I've shown you that case, I'm going to show you what I kind of talk about in kind of the enhanced interrogation techniques, where again, you have psychologists perhaps acting a little bit too movie-esque, a little bit too independent, a little bit avant-garde and without science. And again, we'll see what happens there. And so I want to show you what happens when psychology and movies combine. But then after I've presented you each of those, I'm going to show you the real science behind it. I'm going to show you how we as a field have maybe innovated and adapted. And now how science actually does help police investigations, how science does help interrogations and how it's done in a way that's defensible and empirically valid. Dare I say they may sound like boring words, but... I hope you'll come to realise that they're some of the more important ones that we'll study. So that's part one of this course. 
And I just want you to see forensic psychology in the real world and give you an understanding of kind of that, that kind of interesting history we have with the perception of psychology and maybe the realities and, and a couple cases where, you know, it, it, it unfortunately doesn't end in the best way. And after that, we're going to go into what I call kind of forensic psychology in real life. Now, here's the really interesting thing about forensic psychology. When you think about what we are doing, we are studying, we are learning, we are evolving, we are growing, we are building our understanding of the human mind. And, and one of the things I talk about at the end of this lecture and kind of I have these, these three thoughts to take with you is we are a species trying to understand our own mind, which is an interesting philosophical conundrum, but we're only part way through the journey. You know, we're rediscovering things every day. There are discussions in psychology as to if the brain is a biological machine, if the brain is a computer machine, if the brain is a goddamn quantum machine. And yet in forensic psychology, we're expected to help out in cases right now while we're still trying to learn this, this, this experience and this idea of what is human action and what is human consciousness. And so in the IRL, what I want to do is I want to kind of show you some of the ways in which forensic psychology is applied to the real world. Now, what I've done is I've picked a couple of cases that I really like, just really interesting cases. Some of them you may know. We're going to look at Aaron Hernandez as an interesting case of the brain or possibly Chris Benoit. I haven't decided yet, but, but these really interesting cases where the kind of the brain has changed and what that means. But we're also going to look at a, just an not even an everyday murder, as awful and abhorrent as that phrase seems, but, but, but a murder just committed in the, in the heat of passion as the result of a kind of an abusive relationship. And, and to be honest, the added kicker on that one is that the murderer is my brother's best friend, which I always think just adds a, a, a degree of kind of a, a, again, this is probably a horrible phrase, but kind of the murder next door, the, the everyday case. And these are the things that I get involved in as a psychological, I guess, as a, as a forensic psychologist all the time. They're not always the big crimes. They're not always the, the massive bank robberies, the terrorist offenders. I, I get called to give, you know, to, to operate in legal cases all the time. And they're the, the kind of criminal events that unfortunately happen far too often. And I want to kind of dive into that to show you kind of forensic psychology in an everyday case. And then the other one of that is a kind of an interesting individual, a, a, a guy from my hometown. I promise it. it it sounds like it's a hometown with an abnormally high number of criminals, it's not. Uh, from my hometown who went out and joined the Kurdish Workers' Party and fought against ISIS as an elite sniper. Um, which is interesting given that prior to that he was an 18-year-old IT consultant. Um, and we're gonna, again, we're going to apply psychology to that. So after we've done our movie moments, we're going to get into this really interesting phase of the course where we start to apply these theories and actually do some live casework together and see what you think and maybe I can maybe I can convince you sometimes maybe I can't convince you sometimes but we're going to jump into this kind of blend of, of a week of, of a lecture of theory right so what is what does forensic psychology say about interpersonal violence and 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 the manifestations and the nuances of that and then we'll take that knowledge and we'll just go look at an everyday case right a, a, a boyfriend murders a girlfriend right how do we think about that now that we are forensic psychologists together. And then we're going to go into kind of forensic futures, which is where I kind of want to talk about where forensic psychology is going in terms of the, the areas I think it needs to, to be really, uh, uh, really forward in, and also kind of some of the long-standing debates that we're facing. And, and in here, for example, I'm going to talk maybe about cybercrimes, right? 
I don't know if anyone's seen the um, that new documentary recently. It's probably called The Social Media or something like that. But this idea that the, the computer is almost conspiring to take our control from us and change our behaviours. And our behaviour changes on the computer. And so how as a psychologist can we understand what that does to behaviour, how it affects the likelihood of crime, victimisation and perpetration, right? That's a, that's a future issue we're going to have to deal with. And then as, as these forms of technology get more immersive, as we become more associated with VR maybe, or, you know, more immersive forms of entertainment, how does that change us? You know, we have this long-standing debate of do, do, do violent movies cause violence? So maybe, who knows? But... What about violent VR simulations if you spend seven hours a day in one? How does that change it, right? So that's kind of a forensic future. And then the other area that I'm really excited to talk about is one of my old lecturers, a guy called Clifford Stott, did a lot of work on crowds and the interaction between and within the crowd and between the crowd and the group that's policing it and how that results kind of in in in, in aggression or, or animosity or violence. You know, how can we... How can we police a large mass of people? And it's really interesting. And the reason is that the study of the crowd, the original study of the crowd, comes from a man called Gustave Le Bon. And yes, when I say his name, I will add some French sauce to that. And, and he basically came up with this really interesting theory that depersonalized the crowd and kind of stripped away its autonomy. And, and as, a, as a spoiler for that lecture, you know, Gustave Le Bon's book became kind of Hitler's favorite work behind Nietzsche. Right, this idea that you can control a mass crowd. And, and, and we're going to look at how that idea has percolated all the way through. But there's some really good work on, dare I say it, football hooliganism, in which you kind of realise that crowds are far more complex, they're far more dynamic, and they're, they're, they're interactions ongoing that result in the manifestation of, of violent outcomes. And so we see it from a political, from a social, and from a behavioural standpoint. And that's an area that forensic psychology is doing some amazing work, but we're going to need to do more, especially as we move forward. So forensic futures, I'm going to kind of walk you through. And obviously the other area of forensic futures is we're going to have to talk about the courts. And the, the, the idea of kind of what the psychologist does, you know, when you when you waltz into a courtroom with all the pomp and circumstance and the jury thinks that criminal minds is real, you know, how, what are we doing? How are we affecting juries? And then also, how does the different type of science that we do affect juries? You know, there's this big thing that we're going to talk a lot about. Not, not too much. I don't want it to become a derailing strategy, but you can't talk about psychology without talking about the brain. And so we are going to get into the brain and kind of what that means. But it's really interesting because there's a psychological aspect, but then there's this legal aspect of, you know, kind of if you bring the brain into a court trial, you can kind of convince people more. And it's this uh, almost this return to determinism in this sense that we can kind of re-describe everything as predetermined based on biological structures. And, and any of my psychologists in the class will kind of know that, psychology has gone through waves right sometimes we blame everything on the environment sometimes we blame everything on social structures sometimes we blame everything on the genetics sometimes we blame everything on the brain all of this has implications when we kind of get to court and we're trying to defend or, or prosecute and we're using psychology to to bolster up our arguments so that's kind of the where this kind of goes towards is these interesting future issues that we as a as a field have to deal with. And, and I apologise in advance, occasionally I may get a, a tad philosophical on us here, but I'll, I'll try my very hardest not to. So kind of that's the, the outline of the course and kind of where we're gonna go from there. So 
Before we go any further, what I really want to do is I just want to give you a brief outline into who I am and why maybe some of my background so that you can understand what this course does. Because when I say forensic psychology, there's a version of forensic psychology that is that is very much rooted in this idea of kind of of the the clinical side right so the idea being that kind of you know a, an offender has committed crime and through forensic psychology you can you can understand their behaviors their cognitions their atypical thinking patterns and you can maybe help rehabilitate them or you can maybe help you know their reintegration into society now that is an absolutely incredibly va uh, incredibly important area of forensic psychology but i'm telling you right now that's not me and the reason is, if I were to accurately describe this course, it would be called Forensic, Brackets and Investigative Psychology. And the reason for that is that what I do is I look far more at the, all of the areas that lead up to the imprisonment, really. Like, like I look at the, the, the offender and the offender psychology, right, and what leads a person to become criminal. But I look at the police psychology and how they kind of interact or perhaps intercept or, or run their operations. I also do military psychology. And again, kind of in that area of decision-making and, and, and offensive operations. And then obviously we'll go into kind of the, the legal aspects. But, but what this course is, is, is a manifestation of kind of my lived experiences over the last 10 years. Um, so just to give you a very, a very brief kind of overview, and I don't need to bore you, nor do I kind of want to stand here and tell you my resume. I mean, you don't want to read it it's, it's it's probably very boring but i basically came up through undergrad as a as an undergrad psychologist and weirdly i always knew i wanted to be a forensic psychologist like that may sound very strange that people you know my, my sister knew she wanted to be a doctor age seven she was i don't know smacking a doll on the head and and and, and bandaging it up when i was 14 i realized that's older than seven i did i did my first ever psychology uh, assignment and, and we were basically told we could do whatever we want and i wrote an attachment theory of charles manson and kind of why his early maternal attachments had, had led to his behavior always for me it's always been about psychology at the extreme and and i think even then i was interested in that right so, so whatever i do i, I have this this humanistic idea that all humans are the same. In, in terms of the way that they, they function, I, I, I don't believe that the brain evolves that quickly. And so at the core of it, I feel that most behaviours are explained by the same psychological processes. But those processes look different as the environment gets more and more and more extreme. And I think that one of the most damaging things we do as psychologists is assume we need special theories for special cases. And this is something I've seen from the terrorism world, where people think that terrorism is so abhorrent and extreme and involves such mass harm to people that there has that, that, that no theory can explain that. We need new terrorism theories to explain terrorism. We need new interrogation theories for terrorist interrogation. I don't believe that. I believe that everyone is a person. And if you understand people, then what you need to do is understand those tendencies in the extreme. One of the things I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you a case of terrorism um, one of the weeks in this course. And then I'm going to show you how I think you can explain that case with two studies from 1954 and 1962. Old school psychology theories, classic psychology theories, bit of groupthink, bit of, bit of effective authority, and suddenly I've explained terrorism to you. But all the while, I've kind of always been of that mind. So even back when I was kind of doing 
pre pre high school. I was always interested in the extreme. So I did my experimental psychology um, undergraduate, and then I immediately went and did forensic and investigative psychology, and that was kind of the study of the police. Uh, it was a little bit of the study of the offender, but but mainly the study of the police. And I, I did some some really uh, interesting work. I, I worked on a on a risk assessment tool for prioritizing uh, child sex offenders online. Which I mean, the, the the lessons I learned from that stay with me in terms of how you think about sometimes police problems are more about resources, right? The the idea is I can only arrest ten people. Well, how do I arrest the most important ten? You know, you can take that anywhere: terrorist interrogation, terrorist investigations, child pornography investigations, issues like after the Capitol riots. Hundreds of thousands of, no, sorry, hundreds and thousands of people, all of interest. And I only have the resources to arrest 10 or 100. How do I make sure I, I arrest the right people? So that, that kind of stuck with me. And then after my MSc, I actually took a small detour and I went and worked with the army, a British army to be precise. And I was a, a social psychologist with the British army. And there I worked on some of the operations of Afghanistan, the training of, 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 of soldiers, kind of the the ethos around the war, counterinsurgency, how to, how to win hearts and minds. Um, and then, and then I, I ended up kind of moving out to America. Um, I was offered a, a job to study terrorist psychology. But what's interesting is, is, is while only fleeting, this idea of, of kind of the military and these people operating in extremes, again, it, it's what it is to me. It, it's, it's extreme behavior. People operating in the extremes resonated with me. And so I decided to do a PhD in military decision-making. And so I... I, I um, I worked with Lawrence Allison and and uh, and I studied how soldiers make decisions uh, kind of, you know, out out in the field and kind of understanding how people in in extreme circumstances can navigate uncertainty and commit to a choice, knowing that the outcome could be negative. It's a very we're, we're, I, I mentioned it earlier briefly about the movie moments, but we're, we're writing a book at the moment about how everybody can learn from that, how everybody could benefit from being able to overcome uncertainty, you know. Not all decisions present with good outcomes. And how do people commit when that's not the case? And, and so that's kind of the, I have a big decision-making arm. And now I bring, I mean, I, I just bring all of that together now where I am. So I have, I have research on kind of the military decision-making. I have research on police decision-making. How, how, how do we recruit people with the right personalities to make very hard choices? How do we understand that process? Because one of the issues that we can talk about in this course if you are if you are willing uh, and interested is is when there is an issue such as a police shooting, how do we understand where the blame is and and how do we know when it was a very bad decision made for incorrect reasons and that person should be held culpable versus an awful situation in impossible conditions and an unfortunate and horrible outcome because those are two very different things from a psychological standpoint. And that's one of the things that kind of my work at the moment leans towards with the, with the military and the police. But I also have work still on terrorism. Um, I have uh, some grants on kind of terrorist psychology, risk assessment. Um, I have a, a, a community-based intervention program to teach online safety to you know young teenagers and, and even younger than that. So it's a very diverse kind of portfolio but it all it all stems from where I've kind of been coming up to this point and, and that's what this course brings to you it, 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 it brings to you I think this idea of of that forensic psychology has so many areas where it's needed and one of the lectures I'll give is, is going to be on COVID and not the psychological origins of COVID but no what we as psychologists have done to help 
with help the battle in COVID. And you may think that that's strange. You may think that that COVID is for the epidemiologists and the, and the medical professionals. And <laughs> my family are all doctors and, and, and they played a far greater part in this than I did. But I, along with Lawrence Allison and, and, and some of our team over there, we developed something called Project Aris. And it was our version of helping from a psychological standpoint. So what I want you to think is, it is not just criminal minds. It's not just Hodge in the court. It's not just the, 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 the neuropsychology of psychopathy and the emotional processing of a psychopath. You know, it's broader than that. It's bigger than that. But it's always, to me, it's always about understanding human, human beings at their extremes. And that's really what kind of my history and also kind of this course bring to the fore. So look, this is the first lecture of the course. So what I really just want to make sure with everything is that you are equipped for success. So in this section, I'm just going to quickly talk to you about what this course involves. How do you navigate it? How do you excel? And how do you get that A that you want, right? So let's just very briefly go through this because obviously everything's virtual and that changes how we deliver everything. And I've tried to be responsive to that. So look, this course has a couple of the bare bones, right? The first is lectures, right? So, so as you know, I'm going to put these up every week, right? Me, my camera, my mind, talking to you about the theory. And there won't always be an hour and 15. I know you don't have, always have an hour and 15, right? If it's 45 minutes and I think I can communicate it in that, I will. If it's an hour and 15, Sometimes I may go on a rant and it's going to be two hours, but I am going to deliver to you the knowledge in the most engaging and best way that I can for you to, for you to watch and learn and listen in your own time. And then I've got the readings. And this is kind of something I've been really excited about because I set you reading, this is going to sound ridiculous, I set you readings from the heart. Like I don't pick readings because I think they're the most I don't know that there's some kind of legacy piece. I pick readings that mean something to me. And, and I've always set them to students. I kind of, you know, they read them or, or they don't. And I kind of think like, oh, do you understand the emotion, the philosophy, the love I have for this paper? Um, and usually the answer is no, because it's a paper and you have a million other things that are far more important. But what I wanted to do was, was if we're going to be virtual, let's be virtual. So every week I've taken the paper and obviously I'll share that with you. But I'm giving you, I've, I've created 20, usually 20 or so minute videos in which I talk you through the paper, right? So just why I said it to you, what it means, what the methods are. In one of them, I, I kind of give an example of how the method works in real life. I want you to hopefully engage with it a little bit more, enjoy it a little bit more and, and appreciate why I set that lecture for, and why I set that reading for you, right? Now, in terms of the assignments, okay, you're going to have a midterm. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that nearer the time, but around week eight, you're going to have a midterm. And in the syllabus, I believe, I haven't judged the percentages yet, but my, my guess is it's going to be around 35%. It's designed for you to succeed, and I'm going to tell you everything you need. There are three quizzes. Those will be set remotely, virtually, and to be done on your own time within that week on Qualtrics, right? Normally in class, we're done with that. I'm going to set that to you. And then there's going to be a final exam. And in that final exam, I'm basically going to allow you the opportunity to pick a, a case or a crime that interests you and apply forensic psychology to it. Now, that's just, I just want you to know what's coming. Each of those, you will be given 
a brief uh, a primer on and guidance for before you get to them. But right now, I just want you to know that that is the composite of this course. But what I really want to talk about now is how we're going to deliver these Thursday lectures and what you're going to get from it. Because I know that we're going to really enjoy the way in which we can work our way through this course. Okay, I asked you a week ago whether you wanted to use Top Hat in our classes. And I wanted to ask to make sure that everyone was okay with this. Because again, this is something I use in class all the time. And I really enjoy it. And I'm, and I'm glad that we're able to apply it here. I'm not saying it will be seamless, but I, I sincerely believe that this is going to really help us engage. And here's the reason that I use Top Hat. I want you to think about some of the questions I'm going to ask you in this course, right? Some of the things that we're going to have to consider. Let me give you an example. Thinking ahead to kind of, I think it's around week 12, week 13, right? We're going to start talking about the brain. And we're going to start talking about uh, a certain case, perhaps, of someone who developed a, a, a sexual interest in children. And that interest in children directly correlates with the existence of an abnormality that exists in his brain. So when it's there, he has this abhorrent interest and he's trying to commit crimes. They surgically remove it. The interest goes away. The interest comes back. They do a brain scan and they realise that the abnormality has regrown. Right. Direct one to one correlation. And I want to ask you about that. Right? I want to see what you think. I want to ask you about torture. Do you believe that torture works and why? And I can't unpack this. I can't help us learn through this unless I understand what everyone in the class believes, what people are thinking. But sometimes people don't want to put up their hand. I, <laughs> I understand why. Sometimes people don't want to express the opinion that's viewed as not being au fait with the rest of the course. And again, I completely understand. But what Top Hat allows me to do is it allows me to really tap into what you think, to get a real sense of the room. We're going to be using anonymous discussion boards, so you can tell me exactly what you think, right? We're going to be doing anonymous questioning, so you can tell me exactly what you think. And so for me, it allows us a lot more of, a, of an honest interaction and an honest kind of perception. And also we can use it sometimes for creative little experiments. We can use it for debates to say which side won. You know, we can we can use it to test our learning. So it's going to be a big part of this course and the way that I deliver it to you. But what it allows me to do is to hear your thoughts, even if you don't want to put your hand up and say them. And, and to me, that's empowering. It's empowering to know. I do this one all the time. I, I first lecture of the of, of kind of the enhanced interrogation week. Right. Who in the room believes that torture is effective, right? I don't want to see five hands of people who think that it's better to put their hand up and say, I don't think it is because it makes them look like a nicer person. I want to know that 48% of the room think that it works, thinks that it works. And then when I ask them, why do you think it works? I like the fact that people say, because it hurts or because they deserve it or whatever it is, right? I, I want the honesty of the room. I want to know what people think even in these sensitive topics, because that's how we can really learn. And then at the end of two, two and a half weeks later, I can say who in the room believes that torture is effective. And maybe that 48 is now 20. 
which realistically shows me it was 20% didn't attend. But you know, this is the kind of things that we can do. So you're gonna be learning a lot more about that and we're just gonna, we're just gonna put it in play and we're gonna learn as we go. But it's gonna be your way to talk to me in the class, as well as the Zooms, which you'll hear about soon as well, because we'll have that up as well. So it's your way to engage. And it's gonna be one of the big pieces of this course going forward. Okay, with the last part of this opening lecture, I just wanted to take a few moments to talk, to step back and to think about three overarching concepts that we are going to have to battle. And I'm not saying there's an answer, right? I mean, you could, you could lose decades doing philosophical PhDs on these topics. But to me, we can't think about forensic psychology without acknowledging that there are three rather large hurdles in our way. Not even hurdles. I'm not even sure on an analogy. They're just generally massive problems, but we're going to have to deal with them. So all this is going to be is kind of a primer on their existence because I don't want to, I want to, I want you to be aware of them and to think about them and to know that they're coming. So the first of these issues is generally this idea of, of, of order and chaos, right? And, and what I mean by order and chaos is that if you look at, at, at the human existence and, and human behavior and the world around us, the, the, the multitude of, of ways in which we can conceptualize it is, is beyond reach, right? The, the, the idea of behavior as a manifestation of cognition's experience, neural firing, subconscious priming, hormones, what you ate this morning, what you ate last week, what colour you saw as you got off the bus, you know, your experiences in, in, in the womb, your mother's experiences, evolutionary experiences, all of these things come together and they, they create this moment that we're existing in and in extreme conditions, they create this moment in which a crime or, 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 a, or, or, or a harmful event occurred. And that uh, to think about is, 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 is beyond complex. I mean, I read this paper recently, this idea that, you know, maybe existence isn't Newtonian. Maybe it's not cause and effect that's separated in time and space. Maybe it is quantum. Maybe it's chaos theory. Maybe it's that there's a million different things interacting in a million different ways and you piss one up over here and then, you know, the next thing that happens is over here, now someone's angry. Right, and it's that complicated, and, and, and we try and explain that, and we try and predict that, and we try and understand it. Right, that's the chaos in human behaviour. But what we have as humans is a need for order. And not only a need for order, a preference for order. Kind of, if anyone's read the Kahneman Tversky work about kind of cognitive biases and, and heuristics and kind of how we process the world, we love, love to make things simple. Right, we love to cut corners. We love to make if A then B rules. And that's the world that we live in. We live in a world where we long for simplicity. We long for simple understanding and simple stories. We long for stories in general, which is something I'll talk about later, but, but we do, right? We like stories. Why? Hero, villain. Hero wins, villain loses, right? That's an easy story. That's what the brain wants, but instead, we're looking at this immensely complex world. And what, what, what is theory, right? What, what is, I told you, 
I'm going to get philosophical. But, but what is a psychological theory, right? It's an attempt to make order and impose order on a process that underneath it all is chaotic. And this is the tension in psychology, right? Order that explains generals, that explains kind of overarching predictable patterns of behaviour in the a large proportion of the population. And then the complexity of an individual's lived experience and all the factors that, that manifest in that from, from, from utero through to two seconds before something happens. And this is just one of the things that in psychology we're always trying to battle. We're trying to create order, rules, generalities that separate types of people, that separates genders, that separate countries, that separate cultures. And yet at the bottom of it is the individual and the complexity of their lived experience. And that's why I, that's why I love the legal work. Because the legal work is a single person's, it's a moment in a single person's life, the, the manifestation of everything. And that's, that's what's caused their behaviour. And you're there with your kind of your generalities and your ideas of order and it's a clash of the two. And I really, I'm looking forward to, to unpacking that. That's kind of the first area to think about, just balancing chaos and order. And being aware that that's what a theory is. A theory is order. It's structure. It's definitives. And human experience and behaviour and psychology, it's messy. It's chaotic. It's quantum. The second area that's important is this idea of navigating uncertainty. And that kind of relates to the first, but it's bigger than that. It's about knowing what we don't know and what do we do with that. I'll, I'll never forget, I was recently doing some work and I, I had to stand in front of all of these, all of these uh, soldiers who were about to deploy. And I was talking to them about a research study. And, and one of them asked me a question. And basically the question was, you know, like, oh, decent stats, mate. But uh, what's going to happen to me when I go out like, in this specific village? And, and, and what that puts you in is this position of, I don't know the answer. I don't. I have generalities. I don't know specifics, right? And I can't tell you that I know. And this is one of the things that forensic psychology is going to, we're always going to deal with. It's going to come out throughout this course. Knowing what we don't know and how theory evolves with that. One of the cases that we're going to look at actually on Thursday's lecture is we're going to look at this case where the science changed its mind after the case. In fact, because of the case, the case raised this issue and was decided upon. And the forensic psychologist working on it, it, it created a kernel of thought, kind of an idea. Oh, well, maybe it is different. And maybe I think it's 10 or 15 years later, he testifies on the other side because he's, his mind has changed about the science at the time. And that's what I mean in terms of uncertainty, that we don't know everything. There are fundamental questions about human behaviour that we don't know. There are fundamental questions about crime, about cognitive processing that we don't know. And psychology is always at the very edge of that. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is this idea that it's that idea of kind of the, the media illusion makes it look like we know a lot more than in reality, I think, a science can ever know. And that's the second kind of issue we're always going to be thinking about, kind of what are the boundaries of this knowledge? How far does psychology get us in this instance?
The third and final of these areas, and this is kind of a critical one, and it's almost, it's almost a kind of a public service announcement, if you will, but we have this issue in forensic psychology about explanation and kind of justification, culpability, forgiveness. It's something I'll talk about in, in Thursday's lecture with you all. But if I explain a behaviour biologically, even cognitively, in explaining the causes of your behaviour, to what degree am I justifying or minimising your autonomy and responsibility? Think about that. If someone engages in, in abhorrent harm, right, let's call it your psychopaths or your sociopaths, and I show you a brain scan, and that brain scan shows you that because of a immense amount of early childhood trauma, there was significant atrophy to the amygdala, which has ensuingly caused massive issues in the perception of emotion in others, the detection of fear and kind of that classic pro-social empathy behaviour. And therefore this person, from a biological standpoint, is unable to process a situation the same way that someone with a, with I guess a, a, a fuller amygdala would do. Have I excused them? Have I excused their behaviour? Have I, have I, have I stripped the autonomy from them? And this is a this is a problem that we get to is is can we explain things without the culpability being affected? And it's always going to be an element or an aspect of kind of these psychological theories. But what's really interesting is that not only do we have this question of, of who is to blame, if you will. So the idea of do we blame the perpetrator and, and if so, how much, right? But what is to blame? Because, you know, originally, again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the idea, the idea of, you know, Jean Piaget, Again, little French source there. John Piaget with the kind of the, the, the tabula rosa, blank slate idea. You know, we come out all equal and society shapes us and it shapes our minds. But then you have the kind of the, the classic kind of Darwinian, bio, Dar, Darwinian biologicalism, if you will. The, the idea that our, our minds are predisposed to do certain adaptive behaviours and they're ingrained in our biology, they're ingrained in our neurology, and they're ingrained in our processing. Well... Now we have kind of an interactionalist idea, right? There's this concept of neural neural plasticity, um, the idea that kind of you know behaviours do change the shape, do change the shape, form, and function of the brain. So that's kind of an interaction. But just because I can track a behaviour to the brain, does that mean I've taken away the behaviour from you? This idea of you as a conscious being, and it's it's exactly what it gets to, and it is one of the things that. I'm going to go into, but but never in any any formal substance, because if it's a philosophy course, I'll pass over to Nick Evans rather than me. He's better at it. But there is a debate in psychology about, uh, one, if we are conscious, and two, where consciousness comes from. You know, I think we have this view that we decide we're going to do something, and then the brain lights up, and then we go and do it. So at all points, no matter what happens... We consciously said, I'm going to do this. Well, if you study from a, a biological standpoint, right, you can change your cognitions by changing the brain. Subconscious influences, temperature, colours, different things that we don't consciously detect, change the way in which we think. It's not always that I feel scared and therefore my heart rate increases. Sometimes my heart rate increases and therefore I tell myself I must be scared. 
If you go with a philosophical concept, right, the Buddhist concept is the idea that the conscious self doesn't exist. It's this idea that the left hemisphere, our language hemisphere, is talking ourselves into believing we have a lot more cognitive control than we actually do. And that's the problem with psychology, is when we start to explain, we can somehow find ourselves in a conversation about culpability that we want to separate ourselves from. I want to be able to explain behaviour without having to, to, to pardon or lower the culpability of people just because I can find an explanation. But what we'll see from that, and this is again one of the reasons I really like the kind of the in real life idea, is that you then see almost kind of the weaponization of theory. So if a certain theory moves culpability to the brain, it's used in the defence. And we'll see real cases of that. We'll see genes being used to lower sentences, neural structures being used to lower sentences. However, if you go the other way and you can find a theory that, that moves culpability towards the individual, well, then that one's going to be brought up by the, kind of the, by, the, by, the, by, the, by the prosecutor. And now a forensic psychology case is two psychologists going against each other, each claiming where the culpability lies. There's no answer to this. There's no, there's no ideal solution for us all here. But we are always going to have to think about this, is that as I start explaining behaviours, I'm moving where that culpability lies. And we can do that as a theoretical activity all we like. But in forensic psychology, this is a legal activity. And there are court cases and there are lives and there are sentences on the line that will move based on how the psychologist explains the causes and sources of behaviour. And with that comes immense responsibility to do it right. So with that, I am going to say goodbye for week one. That is kind of, that is the intro to the course. I want you to have an idea of what we've got ahead of us, a small idea of my vision for forensic psychology, but I'll, I'll go into that a lot more uh, in, the coming, in the coming lecture on Thursday. An idea of the materials that will be provided to you. And again, check the syllabus, check Spotify, check Apple iTunes, keep coming here uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll find everything you ever need. Um, and kind of just, just to welcome you. And, and I hope that you are feeling more optimistic about the next 15 weeks than perhaps you were kind of before the starters. As I, I know virtual learning is a lot for everybody. I know it, it isn't what we are kind of what we, we longed for. And trust me, I would much rather be in a classroom than, than in my basement talking to a phone. Oh, well, to be fair, I do, have, I do have a dog here, so that's a bonus. But, you know, I, I know what this is meant to look like. And my job is to bridge the gap, to make this version as close to the in-person version as we can. So I'm going to try it and I hope you enjoy. I'll see you next week.